You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, uh, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. So I want to take a minute to celebrate with LLS and with all of us today the incredible uh, progress that's been made in treating uh, children who are diagnosed with cancer, and also to celebrate long-term cancer survivorship for that group and for all cancer survivors. Uh, Many of those survivors of childhood cancer uh, are now reaching 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, or even more years of cancer survivorship. So it's a good time to reflect on quality of life for survivors of childhood cancer. With that in mind, today we'll be joined by Dr. Jacqueline Casillas, who is a professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in the Department of Pediatrics and the Division of Hematology and Oncology. Jackie is the Director of the Pediatric, Adolescent, and Young Adult Survivorship Program at UCLA in Los Angeles. Thank you for joining us, Jackie. Thank you for having me. So it is really exciting to see that the chance of a child diagnosed with cancer becoming a long-term survivor has risen so much and reflects so much progress. But what I wanted to start out by asking you, what's the cost of cure in regards to what happens in, you know, in the rest of that child and then adolescent and then adult's life? Yes, as you pointed out, Dr. Miller, we've had excellent outcomes for our childhood cancer survivor population. You know, we state that it's an 80% overall survival rate, but particularly for leukemias, like acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is our most common form of childhood cancer, we're in the 90s percent of survival. But as you point out, there is this cost of cure because we use very aggressive treatment regimens that include high doses of chemotherapy. It may also include radiation therapy. And then particularly for some of our higher risk leukemia in our adolescent and young adult population, it may also include bone marrow transplantation. What these very aggressive treatment regimens allow us to get to the high cure rates, but we can have both medical as well as psychosocial late effects, and they're equally as important. The late effects can include, from a medical perspective, cardiac dysfunction, pulmonary dysfunction, endocrine problems, including things such as premature menopause and infertility. You can have neurocognitive outcomes for children treated with radiation at a young age. But then the psychosocial outcomes are also something that we have to also highlight the the impact that this can have. The majority of childhood cancer survivors as young adults will do well from a psychosocial perspective, but there are those populations that can be at risk for adverse outcomes. So let's delve right in. Let's talk about some of the medical uh, late and long-term effects. And I know you're running an active uh, survivorship clinic. So what are some of the common problems that you're seeing in your survivorship population? And I'd love to hear also, I think we'd all love to hear about some of the patients you're seeing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I think, you know, I continue to learn um, from my patients as I'm following them and treating them as children or adolescents and then have the opportunity to follow them long term into adulthood in their 20s and 30s and even for some into their 40s. One patient that I think uh, highlights a very impactful as an important medical late effect is a, a patient that I cared for as a teenager who had a very aggressive form of leukemia, unfortunately relapsed after chemotherapy, ended up having more high-dose chemotherapy, and ultimately went on to bone marrow transplant. Now we're about uh, 15 years out from that diagnosis. and. When we had our annual survivorship visit, now that, you know, my patient, he's married, they're talking about having a family because, you know, they've finished with their college, they have a good job, they have excellent health insurance. But we did have to revisit something that was important at the time of diagnosis. You know, can we do fertility preservation at the time because the presentation He was so ill, we were not able to do sperm banking. And the cytotoxic chemo that we gave, the alkylating, high-dose alkylating agents, as well as the total body irradiation that was needed for the transplant conditioning, placed him, being a bone marrow transplant survivor, at significant risk for infertility. Upon semen analysis, it did show that he was azospermic. And so then the discussion began, could there be options for reproductive endocrinology, reproductive options? Because as life goes on and you often may move away from your cancer center, we were working with community specialists looking at fertility options because of that azospermia. And it created a great deal of distress because there weren't a lot of options, but through our survivorship visits that are key to the kind of annual follow-up, we were able to look and refer to other specialists that may have other options. The other thing too, that could be an impact uh, depending on your treatment exposures, that is also equally as important. We had to have a discussion about sexual dysfunction. And many times I'm a pediatric oncologist by my primary training. And so we may not be as well versed about sexual dysfunction, but that can also be another important uh, late effect for our survivors. So for example, another patient who was a Ewing sarcoma patient of ours had to have high dose radiation therapy. And not only did it impact on infertility because of kind of direct um, exposure to the ovaries, but also on her relationships because of the sexual dysfunction from the fibrosis. Right. So those fertility is one example of an important medical late effect that many times when I'm following these patients in clinic, it might not be something that wanted to be discussed in too great a detail, perhaps, you know, when they're uh, just, you know, adolescents or young adults, but these different issues of survivorship and late effects can occur along different time periods along our cancer care trajectory. So this was something that was a very in-depth discussion about the infertility for my patient because now he was married, done with school, had good insurance, had options and now wanted to start that family. Other discussion points that we've had during, you know, the 15 years of annual follow-up is the risk for cardiac dysfunction from uh, cardiotoxic chemo such as anthracyclines like doxorubicin, but he also got mitoxantrone as part of a what was needed for kind of reinduction to get him back into remission for transplant. So you have your annual screening for that. But I always talk to them, you know, it's not only important to go through each of these medical late effects 
whether it's cardiac, pulmonary, endocrine, reproductive, but then also the impact that can have from a psychosocial perspective. And we did discuss what this infertility late effect had on his relationship with his wife, even though they had talked about him being a cancer survivor. That is a, that's a perfect segue to talking a little bit about some of the emotional issues that come up, psychosocial issues, emotional issues. You know, sometimes children have been treated when they're very, very young, and sometimes they've been treated at adolescence. And I'm assuming that the impact is going to be related to the treatment and also to their developmental stage. But in general, what are some of the uh, psychosocial issues that you're seeing in this population of cancer survivors? No, it's an important question, and I I think it really highlights the impact that cancer survivorship research has had on the field of even treatment, because early on, for example, in our treatment protocols for ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, we know that like the CNS could be a sanctuary site, and they could relapse there. I remember the protocols where you would do, quote-unquote, prophylactic radiation, cranial radiation therapy to try to prevent that leukemia from recurring there. But as we saw the impact that radiation on a young child, particularly less than four years of age, could have on their neurocognitive outcomes, then we were seeing that you could have significant neurocognitive outcomes with children in uh, special education. They can have attention deficits, processing speed deficits. The literature, you know, has been ongoing and evolving in the area of psychosocial outcomes because early on uh, it was shown in research that many of the survivors could have anxiety, and there were certain risk factors for that, such as being female, unmarried, unemployed, low household income, lower educational attainment, and lack of health insurance. But more recent literature says that it may not be as common as we thought, but what we have found in the more recent literature is that having a chronic health condition does increase that risk for developing and maintaining anxiety as a childhood cancer survivor. And I think that's really key because we're saying that you have to be followed for life because there are going to be some medical late effects that will continue to be a risk factor even 10, 15 years out, and I can give some examples of that. But as our our childhood cancer survivor population is growing and maturing into adulthood, um, we have our large national cohorts. Specifically, so much literature has come out of the childhood cancer survivor study. Sure has, yep. And it's so key. And now we have the St. Jude Life Study that is also, you know, a significant contributor to our growing knowledge of um, cancer survivorship. But as we see our patients aging, we are modifying these risk factors. So we don't give cranial radiation prophylactically, but we still are seeing these medical late effects that can place them at risk for anxiety. I also see it, you know, going to one of your earlier questions about the impacts and some patient stories, because I think that really teaches us so much as providers, is that even when I have to have these discussions about infertility, so I have many of my bone marrow transplant survivors that will... I've been fortunate to be at one institution for a long period of time, so I've followed people over the years, and it's great joy to have them come into clinic, introduce me to their fiancé, and then we have to have the talk about their fertility, and it really impacts on their interpersonal relationships. Now, you know, sometimes there's anger, like, why is this happening to me now? You know, my cancer was treated 15 years ago. This is not fair. So there can be post-traumatic stress symptoms when they're coming back to their cancer survivorship 
relationship visits as well as other triggers. But interestingly, when we look at the trajectory, because the majority of our adult childhood cancer survivors are actually doing relatively well, it's because there's also post-traumatic growth that can occur from the cancer experience. And so it's kind of like this trajectory that's modified because of post-traumatic growth. So I'm going to go back because I think it's such an important point. You talked about post-traumatic stress. What what is post-traumatic growth? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, post-traumatic growth is finding positive meaning from this very aggressive cancer treatment. And, you know, I'm just from a a clinical perspective, I'm always just so impressed with our young people as they talk about how can they give back after this cancer experience. Many times in the teen and young adult years of being diagnosed, they may be taken out of school and then have to get back into their long-term trajectory and they kind of find new meaning or new ways that they want to give back and that goes along with that post-traumatic growth. You know, there's many a story where I hear from the survivors that said, you know, I am not in any way putting down my high school friends because they're getting excited about, you know, finding that dress for prom, but, you know, having lost my vision, say for example, because of rhabdomyosarcoma, that, yes, I get that's important for someone else my same age, but I I really want to focus on more positive things. What can I do? I'm excited about going back to school, or perhaps it was, you know, their bedside nurse that they never thought that they were going to go into healthcare. You hear those stories time and time again, that they want to now give back to the healthcare field. I wanted to ask you also, because you've you've touched on the whole issue of of career path, financial issues and insurance issues, and what are some of the, the problems that you've seen come up for survivors of childhood cancer in terms of all of those things, some of the tasks of life and the milestones of life? Well, I think, you know, that is really critical because in the health services literature, it's often been showed that being kind of stably uninsured, where you come in and out of insurance, different types of health insurance, is equal to the impact that being uninsured can have on access to your health care. The reason I say that is because many of our patients, as they grow in age, they're going to need, you know, continuous health insurance for life. And it's going to change over time. So, for example, in California, where I work, we have excellent public health insurance options, but that only lasts until age 21 if they qualify, you know, based on their socioeconomic status. And then as they're trying to find a job, which is, as you know, we know the majority of our health care comes from insurance, but with the uh, Affordable Care Act, I've seen such a major impact on patients being able to purchase insurance that's more affordable because they can have, you know, higher rates of being uninsured. I think about the times where they, you know, are trying to do both school and work and that can be have fiscal toxicity on on, you know, them being able to purchase uh, health insurance. The second thing is say they get a medical problem that is related to their treatment as a childhood cancer survivor. I see many of my young adults, they struggle in the workplace at times because they have a lot more medical appointments than somebody else their same age. Now we know you should not be discriminated against because of having medical problems 
problems, but many of them have told me that they go under a lot of scrutiny if they have a lot of uh, medical appointments because they're like, you're too young to be needing that many doctor's appointments. But there are those striking examples where, you know, patients have cardiac dysfunction. You know, where I work, we're a big heart transplant center. So there may be patients that are in their 30s that because of the anthracycline exposure, as well as modifiable risk factors that put their heart at even further risk, could be on that heart transplant list. And it's that's an extreme example of the impact that these medical late effects could have. But I, I think it's something that's critically important. Another issue too is although it is not the majority of cancer survivors, we do know that approximately 75% of our childhood cancer survivors are going to have one medical late effect. But more recent literature from the CCSS has shown that up to 40% will experience a life-threatening medical late effect, including secondary cancers. So when you think about that, perhaps you're treated for a Ewing sarcoma, you got exposed to atopicide, which is an agent that can cause a second malignant leukemia, and then a few years later, you're now in leukemia treatment. So that can be another significant impact on how you can maintain a job, as well as continuing your health insurance, because you might start on your parents' insurance, but then in addition, as you, you know, become independent, then you're looking for your own health insurance. Leads me to a follow-up question, which is traditionally oncology follow-up visits very much focus on uh, surveillance for recurrence. And so I wanted to ask you about survivorship clinic visits. How are they different? Who are the specialists involved? What are the things you monitor and look for? And also, well, you and I have talked a little bit personally about uh, secondary prevention. So, so tell us about survivorship care. Yeah, so I think it's an excellent question because one of the questions as our childhood cancer survivors become adults, their first question is, you know, how long do I have to get my survivorship care? Now, I think the model is going to continue to evolve, you know, within the United States that many do have specialized survivorship clinics similar to ours in our academic center. But as people move, you know, they have to be well prepared with knowing what their treatment was and so that they can have their appropriate survivorship care planning. And that can be done, you know, with primary care providers. But we at least know from some of the literature that uh, has been done when you ask primary care providers about how to care for our cancer survivors, sometimes they say it can be very overwhelming. So one, they do have to be followed in some format, whether it's with their primary care doctor or a survivorship center for life. In the pediatric model, we uh, recommend once a year because we are reviewing their treatment exposure. So much of individuals' risk for late effects depends on which specific treatments they got, their own cumulative exposures, like for example, higher rates of anthracycline puts you at higher rates for premature menopause in women, or if you've had higher anthracycline exposure, higher rates of cardiac disease. So you will be guided. We are fortunate through the Children's Oncology Group because of all of our uh, survivorship literature that we have survivorship guidelines that we use, and they're easy to find. Just you go to survivorship guidelines through COG and it pops up, but it's lengthy. So you need someone who can summarize your treatment 
and then based on that exposure, do the targeted screening. So based on your anthracycline dose, you'll have recommendations for how often you should be getting echocardiograms. You know, you want to be screening in our younger teenagers, like when are they getting their periods? They could have acute ovarian failure and not get their menses, and that's going to require referrals to other subspecialists such as endocrinologists. You also want to be doing screening for psychosocial distress. So for example, we may use the PHQ-9, which is a very uh, short survey to see how they're doing. And although, again, you know, it's not the majority of survivors, but sometimes you do pick up feelings of like suicidal ideation if they're so overwhelmed by all of their medical late effects. So to summarize, you get your treatment summary, know what you were exposed to, and then you have targeted screening. So if you've had ototoxic chemo, such as cisplatin, then you would get audiograms. There are certain late effects that if you don't develop them on one screening, it's not that risk is not going to continue. So for example, if you've had busulfan as part of your treatment regimen, you could be at risk for pulmonary fibrosis, and that would need to be assessed by getting a pulmonary function test, but that's not something that tends to be a continued risk. But there are other things such as radiation exposure that even after 10 years, that risk for a second malignant neoplasm continues. So if you have a headache and you've had cranial radiation, Perhaps it's not your primary brain tumor that's going to be recurring at 15 years out, but it could be a secondary cancer. But as we talk about these risk for late effects and risk for secondary cancers, which are higher in our cancer survivors, I always think it's an important part of your survivorship care planning, and the literature has shown this as well, to do cancer prevention and controls. I was just in clinic yesterday, and I was talking with one of my rhabdomyosarcoma survivors, and she got a lot of therapy, and we were talking about you know her sexual health and her relationships, and she shared that she was having unprotected sex because she thought she couldn't get pregnant. But we, you know, I use that opportunity, one, to talk about how she had a pap smear. She is, you know, there's the risk for cervical cancer. And she had said, oh, nobody's really talked to me about that. My primary care doctor is a little bit overwhelmed because I have a, you know, I've had a trach and a G-tube, so we've never really gotten that far. So that was one of our items that we had to plan for her survivorship care is getting her pap smear. I think there could be missed opportunities in survivorship clinic if we don't talk about like the HPV vaccine. It's important to talk about not smoking and not drinking too much. And many times, you know, my teenagers or young adults will say, well, isn't that like, why are you spending time talking to me about this? I'm here for my cancer stuff. Shouldn't everybody not smoke and not drink? But I said, you know, you got cancer once and, you know, the majority of childhood cancer may not be genetically based, although there are some cancer inherited syndromes. But I said, you don't want to get cancer again from something that could be prevented. So smoking is a known association, so you shouldn't smoke. The other thing too, skin health and the use of sunscreen. I often have to talk about it because there are higher rates of skin cancers from radiation exposure, but still using you know protective clothing and sunscreen is so critical because you could get skin cancer as well. And there's more ongoing literature developing about even some of our chemotherapy can put you at increased risk for other secondary cancers that are not leukemia. So by the way, I'm totally on board with that because I think 
often people are, at least in an, more in adult medicine, but I think uh, children also, maybe many years out from their original cancer. So the risk of recurrence is, is profoundly low, and hopefully it will never happen. But people are at risk of, of second cancers. And we do know that diet and exercise modifies that risk. So it's good to teach it. Yes, it's so key. And as I've been seeing now survivors into their 40s, as a pediatric oncologist, it's very common as a primary care to, you know, start talking about mammograms and other screening for our adult cancers, which, you know, we don't do in pediatrics because they're typically a different, you know, uh, pathology and rapidly growing. But I have to talk about mammograms or basically breast cancer screening in our uh, young women who have been exposed to chest radiation. But even for those that I'm now following into the 40s, it's an important teachable moment about our routine cancer screening as adults. Great. Jackie, I've heard you say that cancer doesn't stop with a person that has it. And what do you mean by that? Tell us a little bit more. So I've had my teenagers ask me, so, you know, when am I considered a cancer survivor? And when we look for definitions, you know, the National Cancer Institute said a survivor is from the beginning of diagnosis through his or her life, but also includes family members and caregivers. That definition has always struck me very deeply because I see the impact that cancer has, yes, on the patient because they're experiencing all this, but the impact that it has on parents, on siblings, on relationships, friendships. And so it is really key to understand that those that are surrounded and part of that support network for the cancer survivor are also impacted by the cancer experience. There's actually been a growing body of literature on the impact that cancer survivorship has on siblings, and there have been multiple studies that have come out of the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study for that. I, talking with parents, There have actually, early literature has shown that mothers have higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, not just the symptoms, because of that cancer experience. And in my own research, when I've done qualitative research about looking at what are the barriers to survivorship care as our survivors age as teen and young adults, and I've had the opportunities to do multiple focus groups, as well as key informant interviews. And I will tell you, when you're speaking with a parent and they're sharing about their experience possibly 15 years out from that initial diagnosis of cancer, they are in that moment again, and the tears come. And it's just, they said, you know, it's just like it was yesterday, that memory. And so it does impact on all of the family dynamics. But I also think that as our young survivors age, and like I said, I've shared many a happy time in clinic when my survivor is coming and I'm meeting their fiance for the first time. And the impact, you know, about talking about the fertility that we talked about earlier is significant. And and many times the significant other was saying, you know, I love them no matter what, but it still does have an impact on that relationship when they may want to start a family and might have to look into adoption. So I think it's so critical to be able to have support for the whole family. I know many programs will have sibling support groups because There can be an impact on, you know, when you talk to siblings. Well, my parents had to give so much to my brother or sister who was going through cancer that, you know, I kind of felt forgotten, and I don't think that's the intention of anyone. But, you know, I always say once cancer has touched your life, it's never the same. Even when we talk about in clinic, a lump or bump is never the same. You know, childhood cancer is not something we pick up by screening. It's something that happens rapidly, and that impact that it can have on you know, some anxiety is, you know, my other child at risk, 
when it really may just be a bump and a small bruise, but because their other child had cancer. So I think it does impact on all the relationships. Many times I've done work looking at different communities, diverse communities, and some of the research I've been fortunate to lead has looked at kind of, again, looking at these barriers to survivorship care. And what I found in like our Latino population, they say, my young adult survivor may say, well, you know, many times when I graduate to become an adult patient and I I work with adult medicine doctors, it's not family-centered care like pediatrics is. We always have everybody in the room. But when you move on to adult care, they say it might be just me and the doctor, and yet my family's so critically important. If, you know, I many times don't want to go back to the doctor because I don't want to hear about any bad news about these risk-related effects, but because I don't want my family to be affected and worried about me, I'm going. So that's one more factor. So I think it's multifaceted, the impact that it can have on family members and relationships. So finally, I want to talk about resources. What resources are available? What do you recommend for both professionals who want to learn more about this, but also for survivors of childhood cancer? I think, you know, an excellent resource is the survivorship guidelines through the Children's Oncology Group. The exciting part of that is that there are committees that meet and revise, so those guidelines about what screening can be done for these risks for late effects are available, you know, at www.survivorshipguidelines.org or just searching Google with COG and uh, survivorship guidelines. The Childhood Cancer Survivor Study also has newsletters that are available, so they highlight important findings for our survivors as well as providers, and I think that's available through the St. Jude's website. And then, of course, through the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, it's also an excellent source for so many programs. And I know they've had great returning to school and and other resources such as that. So those are just a short list to start off with. So I actually want to mention LLS has a very new program that's coming out called LLS Staying Connected, uh, which will be an online very comprehensive webinar focused on children's transition back to school uh, during and after treatment. So I wanted to, to mention that as a good resource as well. I've loved having this opportunity to talk with Dr. Jacqueline Casillas, who is the director of the Pediatric, Adolescent, and Young Adult Survivorship Program at UCLA. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ken. It's always great to talk with you. Thank you. For additional cancer survivorship resources, be sure to check out the LLS webpage, which is www.lls.org. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. And for any question or refer a patient, uh, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800 800- 955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other resources. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. 
Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org ce. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.